True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 38, The Disappearance of Eugene Zane Nall. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreons for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Blanche Bezadenhout, Janelle Koch, Dawn James, Michael Fowler and his dog Sivko, and Emma for signing up as new Patreons. I really appreciate the support. Don't forget that Patreons get an extra full-length episode every month. And the first Patreon-exclusive episode is out on the Patreon platform. So if you sign up, you'll have access to it. If you'd like to support the show either through Patreon or a one-off donation through PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated. And it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to support the show and help to keep it growing and improving. One of the major purposes behind this podcast is to bring awareness to unsolved cases that would ordinarily go cold and not make it into the mainstream media headlines. Thanks to a few contacts I've recently made, I'm going to be covering a lot more unsolved cases again and will probably be returning to my original concept of one week solved and the next week unsolved, in terms of the cases I cover. From a true crime podcast listener's perspective, unsolved cases are not everyone's cup of tea. People generally like a story to be tied up in a neat little bow at the end of the episode, and to finish off with the knowledge that the perpetrator is in jail. The unsolved cases, though, add a different element, and they're actually why I started this podcast. By covering more unsolved cases, I hope to raise awareness and get the conversation restarted. This may sound like a pipe dream, but when I look at the unsolved cases I've covered so far, it's making a real difference. One such case came to a conclusion this week, when the murderer of Mandy Silver pled guilty to her murder and was sentenced. I covered Mandy's case in the GBV edition of a Spotlight Minisode last year. In 2015, Mandy was found in her home, having been essentially beaten to death, and the only other people in the house were her four-year-old son and her husband. At the time of the episode being aired, Mandy's family were distraught at the lack of progress in the case, and the only suspect in the case, her husband Nando, was still walking free. I covered the case, as did a reporter for Eyewitness News. With kind assistance from Arena Holdings, the podcast was also distributed through a Times Live article, as they do for each of my episodes. And although we'll never know just how much of a role this exposure played, the family feel that the awareness this brought played a major part in the case being looked at again and coming to this week's eventual conclusion. That is why I started this podcast. And that is why what every listener does when they share episodes and talk about them is so vital in these unsolved cases. So think back to November 2019, and if you listened to that episode, shared the link or spoke about it to someone, give yourself a pat on the back for being part of a force that brought a murderer to justice. So when I cover unsolved cases in future, regardless of how old or cold the case is, please think about Mandy and ask yourself, if every victim doesn't also deserve that justice. I'd like to thank listener Monique Nordia for helping to bring the case that I'm covering today to my attention. This is a missing persons case, 
and it's pretty cold. It's the story of a well-loved man who disappeared, seemingly without a trace, leaving almost all of his belongings behind, as well as an ominous note. At first glance, you'd be forgiven for seeing this as a case of someone who just wanted to start a new life. But as we look more closely at the evidence, I think you'll agree that nothing is what it seems. This story is also about a sister, who from her home halfway across the world, has never stopped campaigning for her brother. She is a sister who's driven herself almost to the edge of her very being, because she cannot bring herself to believe that her brother just walked away. So let's get into episode 38, The Disappearance of Eugene Zane Null. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Eugene Zane Null was born on the 28th of April, 1978. Throughout his childhood and high school years, Eugene used his first name, but as an adult, most knew him as Zane, and that's what he preferred, so that's how I'll refer to him throughout the episode. Zane and his sister Melanie sadly lost their father when they were very young. In researching this episode, I had the pleasure of being connected with Melanie, who lives in New Zealand now with her husband and children. She described a happy childhood, despite having to move around many times after her father's passing. The family spent some time in Richards Bay, which Melanie describes as probably the most treasured part of Zane's childhood. Zane was a water baby, and as long as he was near the sea and could fish, he was happy. Their mother would eventually remarry, and Zane would affectionately call his stepfather Obal, or Otopi, which in English translates roughly to old man. For their high school years, the family would be in Pinetown, and Zane attended her school Gelofte from 1995 to 1997 when he matriculated. Zane went on to complete a computer programming certificate after school, while also working as head barman at Club 54 in Pinetown. In 2002, seemingly enjoying the service industry, Zane worked as a duty manager at Kloof Country Club in KZN. He went on to spend 10 months in Florida in the United States, working in a restaurant there, and then moved on to the UK, and finally also spent some time working in Russia and Europe on a cruise liner before his return to South Africa in 2006. Just from looking at his photos and hearing Melanie describe his nature, I can imagine Zane being extremely successful in the service industry. His enthusiasm seems to constantly be bubbling over, and there's hardly a photograph in which he's not smiling broadly. At the age of 28, though, perhaps Zane felt it was time to settle into a less stressful lifestyle, and he became employed by a large mining engineering company in South Africa as an export expediter. Zane was hugely athletic and enjoyed cycling and swimming. He competed in several marathons, including the Midmar Mile, where he would also compete in aid of charity. His times were extremely competitive, and he spent much of his free time training and preparing for these events. Zane duplicated this single-minded focus and success at work where he was promoted within the same engineering group in 2009, to administrate sales into Africa and Madagascar with a team of expediters. Zane was well respected at work and often received mentions in the company newsletter about his various sporting achievements, 
and efforts to raise funds for charity. In 2016, Zayn Null was living with a girlfriend and her young daughter in Allen Grove, Kempton Park. His girlfriend rented a very small one-bedroom flat on the property of a homeowner, and her daughter would split time between her mother and father's homes. When the little girl was home with her mother and Zane, due to space constraints, she'd have to sleep on the couch, which Melanie says Zane was unhappy with, so he was saving up to put a deposit down on a larger home for them. In February 2016, Zane competed in the Midmar Mile in KZN, and then toward the end of February, he attended the Ultra SA Music Festival with his girlfriend. Pictures on her Twitter profile he set up show him and his partner smiling broadly and clearly having a good time. That was February 29th. Zane had a close relationship with his mother, who still lived in Pinetown, and despite Melanie having moved to New Zealand in 2005, he still remained in close contact with her as well. There's a photograph of Zane seeing his sister off at the airport, and he has his niece, Melanie's baby daughter at the time, laying on his chest. The photo exudes closeness. For reasons which will become apparent, we only have one version of what happened on the 2nd of March 2016. Zane's girlfriend would later say that when they'd woken up, Zane had a migraine and said he would be unable to go to work. Melanie confirms that Zane had suffered with migraines his entire life, especially when the weather was very hot or he had eaten chocolate. Zane's girlfriend worked at the same company that he did, and she dressed and headed out to work, leaving Zane in bed to sleep off his migraine. We do not know whether Zane actually called in sick to work that day, It's entirely possible that his girlfriend had reported him as sick when she arrived at work, but that would likely be contrary to most company policies, which require the employee to report their absence personally. Zane's girlfriend says that she stayed in contact with him by WhatsApp throughout the day, and he reported feeling much better by that afternoon. He sent her photos of him playing with his kitten Tigger, to whom he was very attached. She would later be reported as saying in a Bild article that there was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary that day, besides Zane's migraine. He had behaved normally, and she had no cause for concern, until she returned home from work. She arrived at the flats about 20 past four in the afternoon, and found that Zane was not there. Assuming he'd gone to the shops, she initially thought nothing of it. That was until 4.39pm, when her phone pinged with two messages from her bank. One was a notification of the transfer of 14,000 rand into her bank account from Zane, and the other was a separate transfer from him for the amount of 1,500 rand, which was what he owed her for rent. It was that message that contained a strange clue. Zane had used the word brief, which means letter in Afrikaans, and also a four-lettered Afrikaans swear word, starting with a P, as a reference for payment. The woman began to search the flat for a letter. On Zane's laptop, which stood in the middle of a bed, was a letter typed into Microsoft Word. It was not saved. The letter would later be published in the Afrikaans magazine Heisgenuit. Names have been redacted to avoid identifying people or when swear words are used. It was addressed to his girlfriend and read as follows when translated into English. Quote I've decided to move on. Don't try to find me. I'm not a good person. Actually, sometimes I'm scared of myself in some circumstances. I'm not going to resign. I work my butt off for them, 
but then I get judged by some of the worst people I've ever met. You can drive my car until the bank takes it back. There won't be money in my bank account to pay the car at the end of the month. You'll probably be able to drive it for a few months. You can also take all my stuff that's in storage. I think the number is... It's a grey building next to a red building in front of the parking. When you go up the stairs, I think it's the third or fourth unit. But I think if you just ask, they'll give everything to you. My ID number is... You'll have until the end of the month to get the stuff. I'm just afraid if you don't get it by then, they'll auction it off. If you don't want it, then phone my mom and, and tell her that... Must make a plan to come get everything. I hate my job. The sad thing is that I was very happy, but I can't handle it anymore. I get so much more to sort out, but don't get an extra cent. I also get judged about how I handle my team. I don't want a team that talks behind my back anyway. Tell my mom that she can move to New Zealand now. I have no purpose or ambition. I never have. I don't want earthly things, and I don't understand why I must work so hard for nothing. I know I make you very unhappy. You've been unhappy from the day I told you that you're like, and that is months ago. I know you say that you love me, but I don't think you really do. I can see that you're unhappy. You always say things to hurt me, and I think that, subconsciously, you're trying to push me away. Well now, I'll be out of your life. I'm leaving the S5 for you too. I see the screen is chipped at the bottom, but you have two free screen repairs. I tried to contact Samsung to find out, but had no luck, so you'll have to phone. I have nothing more to say except goodbye and good luck. Enjoy the car and all the that I bought. Good luck with your life going forward. You'll help many people one day. That's where we're different. You have a purpose. You want children. And you want to make a difference in this world we live in. Please give laptop back. End quote. In a later article in the Bild, Zane's girlfriend said that at this point, she realised that all of Zane's belongings were still in the flat. His wallet, contact lenses, glasses, two cell phones, passport, ID and car keys were all there. None of his clothes were missing either. The only items that were no longer there were his SIM card, which had been taken out of his phone, his bank card, and his driver's license. She started driving around to see if she could find him, and when she had no luck, she called Zane's mom and explained what had happened. His mom told her that she should go to the police station and open a missing persons case for him. As soon as police were told about the letter that Zane had allegedly left, they refused to investigate. They said that Zane was an adult and if he wished to leave, he was allowed to do so. Within hours, Melanie was alerted of her brother's disappearance and was sent a copy of the letter. She immediately believed that her brother had not written that letter. He'd used names for people that he would not ordinarily use. For one, he'd called his stepfather by his name, which Melanie had not heard him do in years. Even in text messages, he would refer to the man by the nicknames he'd used for him, and never by his name. Another thing that stood out was several misspellings that had been made. He'd spelled New Zealand incorrectly, and she knew that he always spelled it right when he messaged her. The language he used in the letter was simply not how she knew her brother to present himself on paper. Despite relaying this to police, their position did not change. The Null family was on its own in their search for Zane. 
Melanie relays that within hours, her brother's friends had rallied around and were attempting to help find him. As police were not investigating, Zane's loved ones started the investigation on their own. One friend found a vital clue on Zane's cell phone. It seemed he'd booked an aeroplane ticket to KZN for the afternoon of his disappearance. According to the ticket, he would have boarded the flight at quarter past three in the afternoon and landed at KZN at half past four. Nine minutes before the transfers were made to his girlfriend's account. With no official assistance, Melanie began to battle with cell phone companies, the bank and the airline, to get more information. The airline eventually confirmed that Zane's ticket was indeed used, and someone identified as Eugene Zane Null had boarded the flight to KZN on the afternoon of the 2nd of March. For a moment, Melanie says, everyone relaxed thinking that perhaps Zane was on his way to his mom in Pinetown, and everything would be okay. Days went by, though, and he never arrived or made contact, and soon the family realised that they could not assume that it was actually him that had boarded the flight. After much red tape, Melanie eventually convinced the airports in Johannesburg and KZN to provide the family with access to CCTV footage of the times during which the flight was boarded and disembarked. Zane's mom viewed the footage at King Shaka Airport in KZN, and his cousin viewed the footage in Johannesburg. Zane Null is 1.85 metres tall, and at the time weighed 90 kilograms. He stood out in a crowd and despite viewing both sets of footage numerous times, there was no sign of him at either airport. Zane's SIM card seemed like the next natural route, and although the police were still unwilling to investigate, Melanie applied to the court for an order to get access to the information. The order was denied, very likely because there was no police involvement. Melanie recalls that she was very lucky to receive help from from numerous members of the public during this time. People who had access to systems that could help her find her brother. She credits one man in particular with helping her to gain valuable information, but wishes to allow him to remain anonymous. The volunteer tracked the use of Zane's SIM card throughout the months that followed and a GPS coordinate was gleaned for its location. The coordinates put the SIM card in a rural area of KZN, but with few resources available to the family and police not willing to assist, the location could not be followed up. In December 2016, Zane's SIM card was put into a new phone, and his WhatsApp profile picture was changed to that of a little girl, unknown to the family. Friends flooded the phone with requests for information about Zane's whereabouts, and a woman who'd been answering the phone until that point switched it off, and it's never been reactivated. Just a few weeks after Zane's disappearance, Melanie was told by a friend that he'd seen Zane's prized bicycle for sale as well as some of his other items. Melanie discovered that this was being done by Zane's girlfriend, who, when confronted, said that she needed the money as she was experiencing financial difficulties. As Zane remained missing, and every lead they had seemed to go nowhere, Melanie slipped into a deep depression. And she acknowledges that the first two years of her brother's disappearance are a blur. Frustrated with the police's lack of assistance, Melanie raised money through a crowdfunding platform and hired a private investigator. She says that the man got no further with the investigation than anyone else had. Although a case was registered with the SAPS, 
Anne Zane's profile was briefly on their missing persons website. With almost no investigation having been done by the police, and their continued insistence that Zane had left of his own accord, Melanie asked how they would identify Zane if a body, remains, or an unidentified living person was found that matched his description. The answer was DNA. But police had never requested any DNA samples from the family. With Zane's father being deceased, and their mother only holding his maternal DNA, the best bet was for Melanie to submit her DNA. But being in New Zealand, South African police had no suggestions as to how this could be done. Melanie then approached New Zealand police. She recalls that the officer that assisted her was kind and helpful and listened to her story. He seemed surprised that police in South Africa would accept the letter as out-and-out proof that Zane had left of his own accord. Their procedure, he said, would be to investigate the missing persons case until they'd located the person. And if they said they no longer wanted to be in contact with their family, as long as they were safe, that would be the end of it. But they wouldn't just leave it at the letter. The police officer also told Melanie that in cases he had dealt with where people had left to start a new life, they hardly ever covered their tracks, and they were almost always easily found. The fact that there was absolutely no trace of Zane after the 2nd of March 2016 was very concerning, he said. Furthermore, in the officer's experience, When people left notes, either proclaiming that they were leaving or intending to take their own lives, these were almost always written by hand and left in plain sight. The letter from Zane had been typed on a laptop and not even saved. The laptop hadn't been connected to a charger, and if the battery had died, Zane, who was very computer-savvy, would surely know that the letter would likely not be seen. New Zealand police helped Melanie with her DNA harvesting and sent the sample to South Africa. The intention was that when the sample arrived in South Africa, it would be compared to the DNA of unidentified deceased people or people who had no memory of their identity. When Melanie followed up, To see if any matches had been made, she was told that the sample had been lost. She was back to square one. As she felt that it was vital that police have a DNA sample, she tried another route, this time through Interpol. She also wanted the case registered with Interpol just in case Zane had gone overseas. Although his passport had been left behind, she says that by this point, She tried absolutely everything she could think of and wanted to make sure she'd covered all her bases. Interpol, unfortunately, was not willing to take the case unless South African police gave the go-ahead, which they wouldn't. More recently, genetic database Ancestry.com would come to the rescue by giving Melanie a hugely discounted DNA kit with which to process her DNA. They will then develop her profile and forward that digitally to the South African police. Over the years, Melanie says that she's had several sightings reported to her, all of which have turned out not to be Zane. An old friend of Zane's anonymously donated the services of a digital detective to try and see if there was any digital trace of Zane. He found nothing. Melanie, however, picked up that somehow her brother's Facebook page had been memorialised. She had attempted to get access to his Facebook page, and the company had refused, saying that she needed to present them with a death certificate. But magically, shortly afterwards, she started seeing that his birthday messages were now labelled as tributes rather than messages. She's attempted to find out from Facebook who gave them permission to do this, if they wouldn't do it on her request, 
and all her requests have been ignored. Most recently, in July 2020, an article was published regarding Zane's case, as well as the cold cases of two other missing women. Mike Fenter from the South African Community Crime Watch organisation has been a great help throughout the years, Melanie says, never forgetting her brother's case and always doing what he can to get information out there. Fenter stated in the article that Zane's case, as well as the other two discussed, have always bothered him throughout his years at the SACCW. He said that he believes that Zane is unfortunately no longer alive and that a case of murder should be investigated. But in this and most similar missing person cases, it is extremely difficult to get a murder docket opened. Fenter does feel that the article made a difference. And with enough awareness around these cases, we may just see some movement. The missing person posters for Zane all have an SAPS case number on, as well as a name of an investigating officer and a contact number. So there is a registered case for Zane, and perhaps police have done some work recently on it. But if they have, they haven't communicated that to the family. Throughout my journey with this podcast, I've learned a lot about the South African Police Service and the way they work and why sometimes cases are poorly investigated. If I had looked at this case two years ago, I would have immediately assumed that this was a case of police negligence. Now though, knowing what I know about how under-resourced and overwhelmed our policing system is, I tend to view such cases through a slightly different lens. Now I will say up front, that there has clearly been a severe lack of focus on this case from the police's side. They never, ever should have stopped their investigation when they did, especially when Melanie was telling them that she didn't think he wrote the letter. I don't have the police's version in this case, so I guess it would be unfair to make judgments. But what is very clear to me, as a member of the public, with zero investigative experience or authority, is that there was a goldmine of information that was not looked into. Firstly, phone records. When was the last communication from Zane's phone around the time of his disappearance? There were several things that needed to be confirmed by phone records, including who he spoke to on the day of his disappearance, whether he called in to work to say he was sick, whether he communicated any other information to anyone else. Zane left with no means of supporting himself. Almost all of the money in his bank account was transferred to his girlfriend. He had his bank card with him, but that was also never tracked to see if it was used again. Zane left both his contact lenses and glasses behind. As a person who wears both, I would not leave the house without wearing either of them, especially if I was planning on getting a plane and making my way through an airport. He had no personal possessions with him, no toiletries, no clothes, no way to purchase new ones. The letter should have been properly investigated. A digital examination of the laptop would have provided valuable information about the time that letter was written, and possibly other information. The way the letter was written could have also been compared to known samples of Zane's way of writing to confirm or refute the validity of the letter. The fact that the transfers to his girlfriend's account were done within nine minutes of him allegedly landing in KZN, is also something that I think would have warranted questioning. Although the plane may have arrived a few minutes early, we all know that disembarking and getting out of the arrivals area takes some time. Because no banking information was requisitioned by the police, and the court wouldn't give Melanie authority to retrieve his information, from any institution, 
we don't know whether the transfers were done from an ATM or internet banking. If it was an ATM, it would have to be one inside the airport, given the, given the time limitations. If this lead had been followed up, we would have been able to see from CCTV footage at the ATM if it was indeed Zane that had made the transfers, or if they were even made in KZN. If the transfers were done by internet banking, considering Zane left both phones to which he had access in his flat, and there's no evidence that he had a spare phone, how did he make those transfers? Also through phone records, police could have determined how Zane left the flat. His car was left behind. If he called a taxi service, there would be a record of that. If he asked a friend, he would have had to communicate with that friend somehow, and surely that person would have come forward by now. Zane's kitten, Tigger, who he dearly loved, was found poisoned two months after his disappearance. Zane's wishes for the kitten were not even mentioned in his letter, and while this may seem like a small point in the grand scheme of things, any animal lover would likely balk at the thought of leaving their pet behind with no plan for its safety. Because there was no investigation by police, there was also no forensics done, or interviews of possible witnesses. Neighbours could have been questioned, his co-workers could have been interviewed. None of that was done in the precious hours after his disappearance. If the police had been involved, the lead in rural KZN with the SIM card could have been followed up and perhaps led to the identity of the person with Zane's SIM card. Although there is no trace of Zane after the 2nd of March 2016, in my mind at least, this case was definitely solvable. And under the right circumstances, it still is. So what happened to Eugene Zane Nell on the afternoon of the 2nd of March 2016? There are a few possibilities. The Occam's razor theory tells us that the simplest explanation is usually the most likely one. So in this case, that would be that Zane really did leave everything behind and went off to start a new life. In other cases where this has happened, which are few and far between, the person in question is not difficult to find by police. Regardless of how far you run, unless you have professional people covering up your trail for you and creating an entirely new identity, you're going to leave a trace somewhere. There is absolutely no evidence that Zane had any contact with people who could make these things happen, or that he had the capability to do so himself. With all of the evidence make, making the possibility that Zane left voluntarily unlikely, one point stands out above the rest. Zane had a good relationship with his family. He was a caring and kind person. If he's out there, he would know what absolute devastation his sister, mother and all his friends are experiencing. Would he really put them through four years of horrific pain on a whim? We must, of course, consider the possibility that Zane may have intended to take his own life. Although there was never any indication that he was struggling with mental illness, it is always a possibility. But why would he travel to KZN to do that? And why would he not mention this in his letter? If he had committed suicide in KZN, surely his body would have been found. But we cannot guarantee it would have been identified because his case was not being investigated. I find the possibility of suicide highly unlikely though. Which leaves us with the possibility of foul play. There are far too many things that have gone uninvestigated for us to even know where to begin. 
For starters, we only have one person's testimony to say when the last time was that Zane was actually seen. We don't know when his last contact was, and we don't know when he was physically confirmed to be safe outside of the home. There are serious doubts about whether he wrote that letter. But if he didn't, he was either providing information under duress to the person who did, or it was written by someone by someone who knew him well. The inconsistent references to his girlfriend in the letter, first as a good person, and then in the payment reference as that four-lettered P-word, is also strange. It is entirely possible that Eugene Zane Nell was murdered on or around the 2nd of March 2016, and his body was disposed of in an undisclosed location. The motive for murder would only be known by his killer. It could have been revenge, or for financial gain. One theory that Melanie investigated early on was the involvement of drugs. Zane's friends had told her after his disappearance that he'd occasionally used drugs when he attended dance parties and music festivals. All confirmed, though, that he was not a regular drug user. Indeed, the fact that he was an athlete and trained and competed regularly points to the fact that he was probably not using every day, at least. He also had a significant amount of money saved up, which would be strange for a habitual drug user. He had attended the Ultra events just two days before his disappearance, though, so we have to consider the possibility that he'd interacted with someone there and things had gone sour. When Melanie asked Zane's girlfriend about this, though, she emphatically denied that Zane's disappearance had anything to do with drugs, and she also insists, to this day, that he is alive. The soured drug deal theory does not make sense to me. If someone had wanted to get rid of Zane because of anything to do with drugs, isn't it far more likely that he would have been found deceased in his home? Is a drug dealer really going to get so riled up over an occasional user that they would go to the extent to have him wiped off the face of the earth? It just seems extremely unlikely to me. So then we are left with the possibility that this was a personal grievance which led to a planned murder or even an argument that got out of hand and resulted in Zane no longer being with us. The cover-up afterwards, though, is elaborate and, in my opinion, something that was well thought out and very likely planned. Melanie started a Facebook page for her brother's case called Eugene Zane Null Missing Person. Throughout the years, for her own mental health, she's had to distance herself from using her her personal profile on the page, as she'd often been the victim of attempted scammers claiming to know where Zane is. She has done a phenomenal job keeping that page going and constantly updated. Every year since his disappearance, Melanie has baked Zane a birthday cake on his birthday, in the hopes that, one day, he'll be able to enjoy it with her. This year, it was particularly difficult for her to do so, because there was no flour in the stores after everyone had stockpiled for lockdown, so she improvised and used two muffin mixes instead. Zane still got his cake come hell or high water. I asked Melanie to tell us a bit about Zane. My brother had a really good heart. He he used to cut his hair every single year to show his support to the little cancer kids and people with cancer. He used to show me the pictures of his shaved head and all the, the paint and stuff on it and we used to giggle about it and he used to say that just having no hair for him for just a few months 
is nothing compared to what the poor cancer people must go through. And he also did a lot of charity events like the Midmar Mile. He used to swim for, for charities and things. He was just a very loving person. He would do anything to, to help anybody. He, You know, the homeless, he would give them money and food and stuff. And he was just a good person. I used to be petrified of needles. I still am. But even though he was also not too fond of them, he would donate his blood every time he could. Say he's sharing his mojo with everybody that don't have mojo and he just donated his blood with a big smile. He said he loved his little cookie and, and juice that he got in the end of it. He was just such a good person. If you look on my page, everything and everybody just says that he was a good person. He made them laugh. He saw he saw the humor and laugh. He was a big comedian himself, making others laugh and stuff. I just don't understand that he would want to just go away and not be found and and just disappear on his family and everybody. He used to be in contact with me with birthdays and things, and he was actually teasing me endlessly because of my 40th that was upcoming. He would tease me every year saying, oh, getting closer to 40, getting closer to 40. So my 40th birthday was really hard when he didn't contact me. It's still, it hurts that he, he's not contacting me anymore and um, I really miss him. As you can hear, the pain, even after four years, is still raw. All she wants is a resolution to this never-ending nightmare. In the Heiskanoot article, she made the following statement, which I've translated from Afrikaans. Quote, if my brother is still alive and I could give him one message, I would just ask him to contact police and let them know he's okay. That will be enough. We will not bother him and insist on answers. But if he's no longer alive and someone out there can just give us a clue about where to find his remains, anything just so that I don't have to ask myself every day, is my brother alive or dead? End quote. Think about that for a moment. Because I certainly did. Look at one of your loved ones. Your wife, your husband, your child, brother, sister. And imagine them just evaporating into thin air. No matter where you look or what you do, there are just no answers as to their whereabouts. You cannot grieve because you have no idea if they're dead or not. You cannot move on because you don't want to move on without them. So you're stuck in this ongoing loop of questions that seemingly have no answer. And now think about that one person who's out there, carrying on with their lives. And they know. They have all the answers you seek. They're just not talking. Although every case that I cover is special to me, the ones where I communicate with the families stay with me in a different way. I think it's because through them, I get to know their loved one, and they become human and real. And through my presenting their story to you, you get to meet them too. So say hello to Eugene Zane Null, who preferred to be called Zane. He loves the water and enjoys eating out at Spur. He's tall and stands out in the crowd, and his smile is warm and inviting. Zane is an avid sportsman and enjoys cycling and swimming. He was talking about taking up running just before he disappeared, as he wanted to start doing triathlons. Zane loves his mom, sister and stepdad, and he has many friends who speak of him fondly. Zane was on track to some exciting things in his life, but then he just vanished. But no one really just vanishes, do they? And someone knows something. Yes, you. 
maybe you're listening to this podcast, would it be so much for you to just leave an anonymous message somewhere and tell his family where he is so that they can get off this emotional roller coaster? Would that really be so hard? Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself today, you know what your level of involvement was. You know what you did. And you're still likely terrified of being caught. Maybe you need to get off the roller coaster too. Zane's family has been to hell and back. They have not received the support they deserved from the South African Police Service. And I really hope that that changes very soon because I know we can do better than this. I know what our police service can do when they set their mind to it. So it's time to step up and let this family know that they are supported and that their brother's life meant something. Because it did, and it still does. Zane, your sister has never forgotten you. And now, neither will I. And we will not stop pushing until we know where you are. I will place a link to Melanie's Facebook page for Zane on our social media. Please consider joining and sharing his missing person posters. We have already proven that as a community, we can make a real difference. So now, it's time to do it again. Thank you for listening to episode 38, The Disappearance of Eugene Zane Now. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on, on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. 